There is a tree nestled in the hills just east of Santa Clarita in Southern California. It's an oak, now estimated to be around 500 years old. It's not a towering tree. It's nothing so beautiful or majestic that you would stop to stare at it. Nothing outwardly special about it at all. Nothing, that is, except for the fact that beneath that tree, a man changed the course of California history forever. I'm Dimitri Carreno, and this is Solid Gold, the insane stories of California. California is divided into two halves, the top, Alta, and the bottom, Baja. It doesn't even belong to the United States yet. This is still Mexican territory and would be for another six years. A ranch, just under 40 miles outside of what we now know as Los Angeles, Francisco Lopez herds cattle. With him are Manuel Cota and Domingo Bernudas. It gets dusty here, and even in March, the heat can oftentimes be relentless. Manuel is falling behind a bit. Igor Domingo is just ahead. Francisco, pasar el agua. There's no water left in the canteen. You drank it all. That was Lopez, leading the trio toward a creek. They all needed a drink and a rest. Come on, Cota, we're almost there. Little did Lopez know, though, that's not all they would find. The whole of Rancho San Francisco totaled 48,612 acres. Take Central Park in New York City, multiply it by 57, and then throw in a little more. Most of what we know now as the city of Santa Clarita lies within the borders of what was once Rancho San Francisco. Yeah, that's a lot of land. The ranch which has nothing to do with the city of San Francisco, we're talking Southern California still, started out as a spot for one of the California missions. Mission San Fernando Rey de España, which was built in the last years of the 16th century, 1797. Overseers of the mission wanted to expand the use of the mission. They wanted to farm livestock and agriculture there. They found the land they needed north of the mission and, poof, ranch. This land was not entirely empty, however. There were indigenous people living there, a group called the Tataviam. In the name of a Catholic god and Mexican progress, the Tataviam people were relocated and put to work on the ranch, which had once been their native land. They were baptized and taught Spanish Catholicism. But even that was taken from them. Soon after being put to work on the ranch, the Tataviam people were kicked off the land entirely. Things were about to get bloody in Mexico. The turn of the century. 
a great war breaks out, the Mexican War for Independence. It lasts 13 long years. Priorities tend to shift in wartime, and the Mexican government took control of the missions following the bloody 13-year affair, secularized them. An officer named Antonio de Valle fought in the war, and after the war ended, de Valle was assigned to visit the sprawling San Francisco ranch. His job was to catalog assets that were held at the mission and on the ranch, to take inventory for the Mexican government before the people of the Tatavium were returned to the land there. But that's not exactly how things ended up, because the land was never returned to the Tatavium, nor was it returned to the mission. The land was gifted to Army Officer Antonio de Valle from Governor Juan B. Alvarado, a sign of appreciation for his service to Mexico. Alvarado gladly accepted. Some years pass. Alvarado divorces his wife, marries another. This one's name is Jacoba Feliz. Some years after that, Alvarado falls ill, terribly ill. He's estranged from his son, feels horrible about it, wants to make up, thinks maybe a letter and a grand gesture might make up for a broken relationship. Years of half-assed fathering and distance of hearts paid off with huge sums of money. Or, in this case, land. Alvarado deeds his son the ranch, the whole shebang, all 48,612 acres of it. In 1841, he sends his letter, but dies before it can reach his son, Ignacio. Ignacio, much like his father, gladly accepts the land. Unlike his father, though, he only gets half of it. Jacoba Feliz, Alvarado's second wife, is not about to let over 24,000 acres, her legal half of Alvarado's land, go so easily. And now that Jacoba has her half of the land on top of her half of Antonia's other riches, she figures she might as well invite some help up to lend a hand about the ranch. One of those helping hands is an uncle of hers, an uncle who is very eager to come up and work the ranch, practically rushing to get there. Because, you see, he's a smart man. He's a man who's kept his ears attuned during tales woven around campfires, a man who's kept his senses sharpened. He studied mining at the University of Mexico, and he's heard stories, legends, of men finding their fortunes in the hills of California, of riches beyond anyone's wildest dreams buried in the dirt. You just have to know where to look. Luckily, he does. The sky is gray. Yes, it's gray. And it's cold. He exhales. He can see his breath drift away on the icy breeze in front of his face. He coughs, wipes his eyes, but quickly reaches back down to balance himself because he's swaying. He feels the ground beneath him. Dirt. Yes, that feels like dirt, but why then is it swaying like water? He tries to stand, but the earth is too unstable. He looks up. The branches of the oak tree are bare, the wind pushing between them, making them come alive, and they look like clutching fingers, but then they are clutching fingers. 
His eyes go wide as saucers as he sees the bare branches of the oak tree form finger-like appendages. They twist and curl and form grotesque-looking hands. Then the hands reach down for him. He quickly rolls out of the way of the sentient tree just in time, too. Its sharp, bare wooden fingers plunge into the soft, roiling earth and begin digging crazily, flinging barrelfuls of dirt into the gray sky, showering the man in more and more dust. Soon he can't breathe. He just might suffocate on the mud beginning to coat his throat. Then he's hit in the head with something hard. He yanks the brim of his hat down over his eyes, desperately trying to see. At his feet is an apple? No. He's hit with another. This time, it falls in his lap. It's an onion. There is a stream not far from where he is. He crawls, trying to reach it and escape the living tree, but the hands of the tree reach for his ankles, yank him back to a spot, and then return to their digging. Another onion flies from the earth and strikes him. In the ribs this time, he makes for the stream once more, only to be forcefully pulled right back to his spot. He screams. Unable to stand, the ground beneath him feels like the raging waves of a sea in a storm. The sky has gone from gray to filthy brown, dust everywhere. But then he notices something. The branches, the digging fingers of the tree, they're starting to sprout. Leaves. He squints against the onslaught of dirt and dust. Yes, there are leaves there now. He's hit with another onion. The things are falling all around him now. What is this tree digging for onions? He's hit in the head again, but this time with something small. A pebble? It's not just warm now, it's starting to get hot. The sky, it looks blue. The earth is roiling like a tsunami, and then it all stops. The sentient tree has stopped digging. All is silent. It takes a good couple of minutes for the dust to clear, and he practically coughs up a lung while he waits to be able to see. Soon enough, he can, and he can't believe his eyes. Before him, at the base of the tree, is a great hole. But it's what's in the hole that catches his attention. It's a bright yellow glowing pit, heat like blazing fire radiating from it. And it's blinding. Francisco Lopez awakes beneath the tree. He's panting, sweating, confused. This was the most vivid, surreal dream he's ever had. A dream he's been waiting for. The sky above him is blue. The air around him is dry and hot. The earth beneath him is soft, but stable. And up ahead of him, near the stream... He sees a green sprout poking from the dirt. Francisco stands, checking the branches above him for any signs of movement, then proceeds to the sprout. The other men are some yards away, taking their own siestas. He kneels before the sprout, reaches for it, pulls it up. It's an onion. But it's just that. An onion. He sighs heavily. Well, he is hungry. And it's better than nothing. He wipes the dirt from it and... Wait. What was that? 
that glint of yellow in the dangling roots. Lopez's heart starts to race now. He brings the thing close to his face, so close he can taste the dirt. There, clinging to the roots of the onion, is a fleck of gold. Lopez just stares for a long moment, agape, astounded. He flicks the side of the onion. More dirt falls, revealing another fleck of yellow metal tangled in the twisting roots. He shoves the thing into his pocket, digs, unearths another fleck. He's shouting now, but he doesn't know it. It's reactionary, a thoughtless reflex. He shouts, trying to wake the others, but they're still a ways off. He keeps digging, shouting, laughing insanely until he pulls from the ground a bona fide, genuine, what dreams are made of, nugget of gold. Francisco screams. He yips and yelps with glee. He spits on the nugget, polishes it with his bandana, holds it up to the sunlight. It glimmers like a star in his rough, dusty hands. Forget what you know about the California gold rush. James Marshall, the man credited for finding California's first gold and igniting the gold rush, and what would become known as Manifest Destiny, which is the misplaced idea that white Americans had a God-granted right to tear their way across the continent and wreak havoc and, in more ways than one, destruction along the way, isn't exactly who history claims he is. History's erasure, Francisco Lopez, is, sadly, very in character, isn't it? Just after his historic discovery, one that, yes, even John Marshall himself knew about, Lopez is lost to history. How many of you listening heard about him from your teachers growing up? Read about him in your textbooks? And not just Lopez, but the Tataviam's story is lost in all this too. Doesn't that sound all too familiar? Credit for the first gold found was given to the white John Marshall at Sutter's Fort. Some of you might say, California didn't even belong to the U.S. when Lopez found it, so Marshall really was the first American gold found. Look, I'm not saying this was the first American gold found. It wasn't. I mean, even before Lopez, there were others lost to the annals of history because theirs were stories told around fires, legends that were whispered over years and years Decades, even, never put to paper or documented or made legal. No, I'm not saying Lopez was the first colonized American discovery of gold. I'm asking why you hadn't heard his name before, when even Marshall knew damn well who he was. Some points here. One, this was less than 10 years before Marshall's discovery. Not 50, not 20. Seven Seven years. Two, the story is very American. If by American you mean obscuring the historic discovery of a brown man only to glorify the later discovery of a white man, then yeah, that sounds pretty American. Three, this land was not Lopez's land. This land wasn't even rightfully Jacoba or Alvarado's land. That land belonged to the Tataviam people. Fun fact, because I know some of you were wondering, the Tataviam government is still based in that spot, where their people always have been, to this very day. 
What I'm trying to say is this. Take the United States of America out of the discovery. Instead, think of the ramifications of what happened. Lopez found gold. He wrote to the governor asking to mine there. This was the first recorded gold bust, and it started a migration of Mexicans to that place to begin mining. That is a gold rush by definition. The first in California, recorded anyway, just seven years before the one you know about. Isn't that something? Lopez and his brother rode to Los Angeles, or rather, what it was known by back then, its full name, El Pueblo de Nuestra Señora La Reina de Los Angeles, to be appraised. The samples of the gold made their way all the way to Philadelphia, home of the U.S. Mint. The nuggets were determined 0.926 pure, valued at $19 an ounce. That's equivalent to a little more than $400 in today's money. You can see the tree today. It's old and it's dry and it's not so big and it's not so pretty, but it represents a whole hell of a lot. It represents a dream, literally and figuratively. So, if you're in the Santa Clarita area, go check it out. Tell everyone you know about Francisco Lopez and his weird dream. Tell them about the Tatafium people. Tell them about how history books missed a spot, as they frustratingly often do. Tell them about the Mexican gold rush and how it started a domino effect that would change everything. You know what? You can just send them to this podcast, too. This podcast was written, narrated, and produced by me, Dimitri Carano. Did you learn anything? Did you have even a little bit of fun? Subscribe to the show and leave a good review. Go tell your friends about us. It helps the show get discovered and keeps us making more. Is there an absolutely crazy, totally bonkers, weird, or altogether forgotten story about California history that you know of? DM us on Instagram, and we might make an episode about it. Our next episode will be out next week, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out. Small details, including some dialogue and atmosphere, have been embellished for effect. This has been Solid Gold. The Insane Stories of California. A Voice in My Head production. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.